Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. In late 1908, business moguls from Aberdeen, Washington, gathered in the local Elks Club Hall. From the front of the room, mayoral candidate Ed Ben addressed the men. Ben announced, for five years, someone has been killing the sailors and dock workers in Grays Harbor. Though no one has been arrested for the crimes, everyone gathered there knew exactly who to blame. Union organizer Billy Gould. For years, the labor activist had been a thorn in their sides. If they could prove he'd killed these men, they could finally put him behind bars. But to link Billy to the spate of killings, the local police needed more resources, which is where the business leaders came in. Each of them had money to spare, and tonight, Ben needed as much as they could give. By the end of the evening, they'd secured $10,000 in donations. Now it was time to take down the accused ghoul of Grays Harbor, whether he was guilty or not. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Ghoul of Grays Harbor. In the early 20th century, dozens of bodies washed ashore in Aberdeen, Washington. Labor organizer Billy Ghoul was blamed for these murders because of his proximity to the men and his violent personality. Last time, we discussed the floater fleet, the numerous corpses pulled from the water in 1907. Then, we followed the trail of the dead to union organizer Billy Ghoul. Over the years, Ghoul has taken on mythic proportions as one of America's deadliest serial killers. This week, we take another look at the grisly deaths from 1903 to 1910. Then, we'll re-examine the evidence against Billy Ghoul while exploring an alternate explanation. The ghoul of Gray's Harbor never existed outside of a nefarious conspiracy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. In February 1910, Billy Gould awaited trial behind bars in Aberdeen, Washington. An eager press barraged him with questions about the people he'd allegedly murdered. But Billy was resolute in his answer. He'd never killed a man in his life. He would never hurt his sailors. That line was somewhat unbelievable to bystanders. There was a lot of evidence against Billy. Police had a witness claiming Billy had killed his friend, Charles Hadberg, and they had the body and weapon. They also had months of evidence gathered by undercover agents. It implicated Billy in a number of crimes spanning several years. It was a clear-cut case, or at least that's what it seemed like at the time. In reality, there were a lot of holes in the story the police told the press. First, the location of the murder. According to the eyewitness, Billy killed Hadberg almost a thousand feet away from where the man's body was found. And after murdering his friend, he supposedly dumped the guns in the river. But those weapons were found beside the corpse. This meant the firearms would have had to travel the exact same route Hadberg's body did, conveniently ending up right next to the corpse for police to find. Additionally, the weapons were in pristine condition. They had no signs of rust, although they were reportedly in the water for up to six weeks. Even the corpse police claimed belonged to Charles Hadberg raised some questions. The body that washed ashore was certainly shot in the head, but that didn't mean it was Hadberg's body. By the time the remains were discovered, the deceased had been in the water for as long as six weeks just like the weapons found near him. The lengthy stay in the drink would do serious damage to a body. His limbs should have swollen and marine animals ought to have devoured his flesh. He'd be unrecognizable and the police wouldn't have been able to identify him on their own. Typically, law enforcement turns to close friends and relatives to view dead bodies. Ironically, Billy had frequently ID'd the sailors since he knew many of them intimately. 
But in this case, neither Billy nor any of Hadberg's close friends were allowed to see the corpse. Still, that didn't stop his friends from trying. At some point after Billy's arrest, Hadberg's co-workers at the Sailors' Union pushed their way past security into the room where the body was being held. They got a good look at the man police claimed was their friend and colleague. But the corpse looked nothing like Charles Hadberg. They were certain. Even though the remains were badly decomposed from all that time in the water, they could still tell it wasn't their friend. DNA testing was unavailable at this time, so there's no way to prove whether this person really was Charles Hadberg. And police maintained their stance all through the trial against Billy Gould. They couldn't consider the possibility they'd misidentified the deceased. But even if we assume authorities were telling the truth and the body really did belong to Charles Hadberg, there are still gaps in the story. Consider eyewitness John Klingenberg, who claimed he was with Billy at the time of the murder. He gave his testimony under uh, suspicious circumstances. On February 6, 1910, Klingenberg arrived at the port of Aberdeen after spending weeks locked in the brig of his ship. Klingenberg was a Danish sailor, an immigrant to Grays Harbor, and an associate of Billy's. He was out at sea when the police identified him as a person of interest. At law enforcement's behest, his captain drugged Klingenberg and brought him back shoreside so they could question him about his involvement in the suspected murders of two Aberdeen men. By the time the ship docked, Billy was already in jail. Investigators had found the body they claimed was Charles Hadberg, along with several revolvers belonging to the Union agent. But Klingenberg's testimony was essential to shoring up their case. They dragged the sailor from the brig to the Baldwin Hotel for interrogation. They made short work of him, no doubt in part because he was terrified. His captain had just forcibly detained him. He was an immigrant who spoke broken English, and he was a small man, five feet and three inches, weighing 130 pounds. His likely interrogator, Patty McHugh, was the exact opposite. He towered over Klingenberg and likely had little trouble getting the sailor to do as he asked. Intimidated, Klingenberg came out of his interrogation sobbing and terrified, begging authorities to kill him to put him out of his misery. In that moment, the police could have likely gotten the sailor to confess to just about anything. These days, we understand a lot more about police interrogation techniques than people did then. And perhaps the most important discovery made in the last 50 years or so is how easily harsh interrogations can produce false confessions. Intelligence experts have rallied around this point for years. In fact, in an open letter signed by 25 former CIA, military, and intelligence officers, they said, quote, The application of psychological, emotional, and or physical pressure can force a victim of torture to say anything just to end the painful experience. Their letter was a resounding rebuke of interrogation techniques used by police departments and intelligence agencies throughout the 20th century. We don't know for sure whether Klingenberg was tortured, but the expert's point still stands. 
people often give false confessions under interrogation. In a survey of 300 cases of wrongful imprisonment, over a quarter of the accused had confessed before they were exonerated. That's 25% of people who didn't commit a crime, but told the police they had anyway. And whatever happened in that hotel room interrogation brought Klingenberg to the brink of desperation. It's not clear what he went through, but when he emerged, he told the police exactly what they wanted to hear. Billy Gould had murdered Charles Hatberg. All the while, Billy maintained his innocence. He said the entire story was fabricated by the unscrupulous and fiendish machinations of my enemies. And over a century later, historian and labor researcher Dr. Aaron Goings argued Billy was right. Coming up, Aaron Goings sets the record straight. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. Now back to the story. In 1910, Billy Gould was convicted of murder. It would take over a century before anyone would question the official accounts or notice the many discrepancies in the evidence against him. As historian Aaron Goings dug into Billy's life in his 2020 book, The Port of Missing Men, Billy Ghoul, Labor, and Brutal Times in the Pacific Northwest, he noticed a number of oddities with the case. Billy had claimed there was a conspiracy against him, and it seemed he was right. After all, the authorities in Aberdeen had plenty of motive to take him down. As a labor activist, Billy was wildly unpopular with the local business leaders. His adversarial relationship with the logging and shipping companies began in 1906 with a union strike. On one of the very first nights of the work stoppage, Billy Gould and 16 other men packed into a small boat and followed a ship called the Fearless out of port. The union had heard rumors about this vessel, The crew was made up of non-union workers, and they were holding at least one union member on board against his will. As Billy's little boat pulled up to the massive schooner, he knew the encounter could turn violent. Sure enough, as they boarded the ship, the captain came out to the deck and ordered Billy's men to leave immediately. 
The directive didn't phase Billy, so the captain gave a firmer warning. If they didn't leave, he'd fire on them. But once again, that threat did nothing. And within moments, gunfire erupted between the two vessels. For Billy, this was just part of the job. If the strike wasn't actually hurting local companies, there was no reason for the business owners to negotiate with them. If a firefight was what it took to increase his negotiating power, so be it. When the crew of the Fearless retreated back to shore, Billy saw it as a huge success. He'd shown what the Union was capable of. The event set a precedent for the rest of the summer. Throughout the contract negotiations, violent clashes between the organized workers and scab labor became increasingly common. Billy Gould remained resolute. Nothing would stop him from securing a contract. Two months after the battle on the Fearless, the captain returned to Aberdeen after a voyage. He was outraged to find Billy still walking the streets as a free man. Offended, the captain pushed local police to arrest the Union activist for his reckless attack. Billy managed to avoid prison time, and local shop owners rallied to pay his legal fees. But the judge charged Billy a hefty fine of $1,200, which would be valued at more than $35,000 in 2022. The verdict absolutely wrecked Billy financially. The fine was more than a year's salary. In 1908, Billy declared bankruptcy. And for the next two years, he struggled to make ends meet, surviving on the meager earnings from the boarding house his wife ran and other piddling sources of income. This period of struggle ended only with Billy's arrest for murder, which, of course, spelled even more trouble for the union activist. It seemed the business owners of Aberdeen had finally eliminated their biggest threat. According to author Aaron Goings, evidence suggests that the local business elites may have actually conspired against Billy. Leading the charge was Edmund Benn, a business leader who had a long-held personal grudge against the organizer. Ben was a wealthy businessman who'd campaigned to move the county seat and courthouse to a more affluent area. Billy opposed the proposal, arguing it would disenfranchise much of the working class. Billy fought the move not with bullets, but with press releases and editorials in union newspapers. In turn, anti-labor outlets ran headlines accusing the union of election rigging. Some newspapers warned if readers voted against the measure, the union would control them body and soul. Ben publicly excoriated the organizer, claiming he'd paid Billy $25 to promote the measure. Supposedly, Billy took the money and then campaigned against it. For his part, Billy denied the story entirely, and there was no proof to back it up. As in the fight against the fearless, Billy ultimately won. The proposition was defeated at the ballot box after his media blitz. But this wasn't the end of the story. Ben gathered several powerful leaders in the Washington shipping industry at the Elks Club in 1909. Together, they secured a slush fund of $10,000. They used this money to pay the private detectives who infiltrated Billy's social circle. Remember, these were the investigators who eventually testified against Billy in court. And they also had 
shady backgrounds. Patty McHugh was a member of the Teal Detective Service Company. That name set off major alarm bells for historian goings. He knew the Teals were a spin-off of the Pinkertons, the infamous private detective agency founded in 1850. Pinkerton detectives had a long and settling history of union busting. Their tactics were ugly, sometimes subtly so, like going undercover in a mining union and blowing through company money to bankrupt the workers. Other times, they were deadly, like when a group of 300 Pinkertons were hired to end a steel plant strike and wound up killing 10 workers. When Detective George Teal left the Pinkertons and opened his own company in 1873, he brought that same brand of union busting to the Pacific Northwest. Rather than rely on local police to solve disputes, company owners frequently brought in Teal detectives to spy on workers. So when these businessmen turned a Teal detective on Billy Gould, they likely assumed the investigators would break up the union by any means necessary. But even if the Teal detectives framed Billy, that still doesn't answer the question of who the ghoul of Gray's Harbor was. Dozens of dead bodies don't just come out of nowhere. Perhaps the culprit was an established serial killer, someone we already know about, but who hasn't been definitively tied to these deaths. Someone like Sid Jones. Little is known about Jones, but the information we do have paints a grim picture. He joined the Army's 10th Cavalry Regiment in the early 1900s. While stationed in Fort Robinson, Nebraska, the men in Jones' squadron scuffled with the local authorities. Shots flew, and Jones reportedly killed three men. It was likely an exhilarating experience for the young soldier, and perhaps he wanted to recreate it. As the U.S. Army dispatched him to different bases throughout the country, Jones killed more bystanders. Jones killed indiscriminately and with precision, and his spree may have taken him up the West Coast to Aberdeen. After all, most sailors were young, single immigrant men, so when they went missing, no one really paid much attention to it. It was the perfect killing ground for a murderer who didn't want to get caught. But there's a huge hole in this explanation. First, we don't have proof Sid Jones ever set foot in Washington State. And once he was finally captured and convicted, he confessed to 13 murders. None of them were part of the floater fleet, the numerous bodies that washed ashore in 1907. So it's unlikely Jones ever had anything to do with the ghoul of Gray's Harbor. And there aren't many other likely candidates who could have committed the murders. But when historian Aaron Goings dove into primary source documents about the floater fleet, he believed he solved the mystery once and for all. Coming up, the truly sinister origins of the ghoul of Gray's Harbor. Now, back to the story. For over a century, the story of the Port of Missing Men centered around one man, Billy Gould. The authorities convicted Billy of murder, and local legends painted him as a bloodthirsty monster. But St. Martin's University professor Aaron Goings pushed back on this narrative. 
Goings reviewed Grays Harbor newspapers, correspondence between those involved in the original case, and contemporaneous accounts of the so-called floater fleet of dead bodies. After reviewing all the evidence, he concluded there never was a ghoul of Grays Harbor. For one, he pointed to the death rate. If there truly was an active serial killer in Grays Harbor, mysterious disappearances and reported murders should have increased significantly during that time. But when Goings ran the numbers on drownings in Aberdeen, he found very little. In 1902, before the ghouls reported active period, there were seven deaths by drowning. In 1907, the year of the floater fleet, there were nine. An increase of two is hardly proof of a serial killer. Besides drownings, there were a total of 145 deaths between January 1906 and December 1908, and only five of them warranted an official inquest, according to county death records. We don't know the circumstances of each of those fatalities, but five cases of foul play in a city frequented by rough-and-tumble sailors seems pretty modest. So maybe there was no spate of suspicious deaths in Grays Harbor. But there is something suspicious about who was dying during this time and under what circumstances. By and large, the deceased were sailors and loggers working dangerous jobs in unsafe conditions. Billy knew all along the work was killing his men. Throughout his career, he fought for safety improvements both on and off the job. In newspaper editorials, he rallied the public against the practice of crimping, in which captains would abduct sailors to work aboard their ships. Ship captains regularly kidnapped sailors when they needed extra hands. They plied their targets with alcohol or sometimes simply outright drugged them. The unwitting victims would awaken in the ship's brig the next day when the vessel was already miles away from shore and they had no way to get back home. These sailors had two choices. They could work for the captain who'd abducted them, or they could simply stay in the brig the whole journey without food, water, or money. This practice was common and even legal in the early 1900s. But Billy Gould campaigned to criminalize it, and in 1906, his efforts paid off. The U.S. Congress finally outlawed crimping, although given the minimal oversight, Captains continued kidnapping sailors well into the 1910s. And Billy didn't only oppose the practice. He also kick-started a public safety movement on the docks of Grays Harbor. Night after night, Billy's colleagues and friends walked the dark, rickety boardwalk, often drunk after a night of revelry. There were no streetlights, and planks of wood often snapped under pedestrians' feet. They would go tumbling into the waters and, drunk or not, often drown. Billy campaigned to place street lamps all along the harbor. He garnered support from several local papers, but the city did nothing, and people continued to die in easily preventable accidents. All this just goes to show how dangerous the workplace was. Loggers routinely broke bones or died under falling timber. Dock workers and sailors fell from boats and broke their necks or drowned. Ships were poorly maintained. Equipment was old. Businesses were short-staffed. 
overwork and lack of sufficient rest only made accidents more likely. And even if a workplace mishap didn't kill you, the grueling labor would likely contribute to a lifetime of steady physical decline. So something was killing people in Grays Harbor. It wasn't Billy Ghoul nor any other serial killer. The ghoul that killed the locals in the port of missing men was big business. By shifting the blame for their own carelessness onto a single man, entrepreneurs found a scapegoat and silenced a safety advocate. Until they allegedly framed him, Billy had taken his job seriously, risking life and limb to protect union workers. He was respected and so trusted, laborers would leave their life savings with him when they were out at sea. They counted on him, believed in him, and were willing to follow his directives. And for big business, this was a huge threat. At the time, fewer than one in 10 workers belonged to unions. So Billy was on the cusp of the labor movement, fighting for something revolutionary. This likely intimidated big business. So they were willing to do anything to eliminate him. And afterward, they used the power of narrative to ensure no one would step up to follow in his footsteps. Take Ed Ben, Billy's longtime nemesis. Ben wasn't only an influential businessman, he also had political ambitions. Soon after he called the meeting to plot against Billy, Ben won the mayoral seat in Aberdeen. He passed policies that favored big businesses and pushed workers' rights to the side. Meanwhile, other labor organizers were arrested, and some were convicted on trumped-up charges, just like Billy. A 1919 bill in the Washington State Legislature made participation in the Industrial Workers of the World Union illegal. This sent numerous union men to the state penitentiary at Walla Walla, where Billy was also imprisoned. But despite these efforts, organized labor persevered throughout the 20th century. By 1947, more than 30% of workers were unionized in both the public and private sector. But this peak didn't last for long. Today, around 10% of workers belong to unions. And this has had devastating results. In a 2019 report, scholars at the Brookings Institution found the decrease in union participation drove wage inequality in the United States. And safety issues persist. In 2019, about 15 people died every day in the United States due to fatal work injuries. Perhaps workers today need an advocate like Billy, the real man, the activist, not the monster prosecutors turned him into. Over the years, the account of the ghoul of Grace Harbor has reached mythic proportions. A simple Google of serial killers on the West Coast is sure to turn up story after story about Billy Ghoul. He became an icon for morbidly curious tourists in the Pacific Northwest. One entrepreneur opened Billy's Bar and Grill to draw visitors in. Regardless of his actual guilt or innocence, Billy Ghoul will forever be known as the Ghoul of Grays Harbor. He once haunted union meetings and terrorized unscrupulous dock captains. And today, he's become a different sort of nightmare, an alleged killer whose legend was born in other men's injustice 
and guilt. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the ghoul, amongst the many sources we used, we found Aaron Goings' The Port of Missing Men extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, the Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults.